Welcome to the Medici Podcast, Episode 17, The Invisible Throne. want to give thanks to the host of the History of Italy podcast, Mike Karate. Uh, I hope I said your name correctly. I'm still working my way through your back catalog, but I already love your podcast and I give it my full endorsement as a fellow podcaster in Italian history. Also on a personal note, I'm grateful for your kind words and for you listening. As for everyone else, as always, you can support us on Patreon, and you can check out images, maps, and more at MediciPodcast.com. I'm currently working on a genealogy that will cover the family, at least up to Cosimo's own time, with expansions in the future, of course. For that, the research has been pretty easy, especially because I know enough Italian to get around various online resources about the more obscure parts of the genealogy of the Medici family. It's just been more of an issue of finding a program or a template that I'm satisfied with that would let me put together a charter tree without too much hassle. But I'm hoping that by the time I have the next episode up, I'll have a genealogical chart on the website that you can use as a reference, especially because we're about to get to the point where the family tree is going to get a tad unwieldy. So with that, let's start by talking about this concept of an invisible throne and why Cosimo, after his return from exile, can be said to have one. By the time the Council of Florence was over, if not sooner, foreign leaders wrote to and talked about Cosimo de' Medici as if he were the de facto ruler of Florence. This is rather remarkable because unlike other Italian rulers, Cosimo never called himself or was called Signore. Nor did he ever receive some kind of aristocratic title or was voted in office like dictator for life that cemented his power. In fact, in the decades between Cosimo's triumphant return and his death, for the most part, commentators within Florence write and talk as if the Republic was just chugging along like always. Cosimo actually pushed only one major reform to the government, which we'll get to in this episode. Overall, just by pulling the levers provided for him by the Florentine Constitution and by his own patronage network, Cosimo made himself the all-but-unchallenged ruler. In fact, Cosimo's regime was, for the most part, so subtle and was managed so indirectly that even now modern historians have trouble determining exactly what decisions made by the official political leaders of Florence were actually their initiative, or if they were acting entirely on behalf of Cosimo. I'm not sure I'd agree, but I think there's a case to be made that the day Cosimo returned to Florence, 
was the beginning of the end of the Republic. But it didn't play out like the words of a certain space queen. So this is how liberty dies. With thunderous applause. If anything, in the case of Florence and Cosimo, it was more like the Republic died with the sound of, huh, that's kind of weird. Oh well. Of course, no one can gain power without allies, and Cosimo did have plenty of them at the top. Even though, tragically, he was deprived of two key supporters he could trust early on. The first was his cousin Everardo, who died before their exile ended. Averado's only son, Giuliano, also passed away shortly after his father's death. Then Cosimo's beloved brother, Lorenzo, died, apparently suddenly, at the age of 45 in 1440, just about a year after he helped negotiate the relocation of the Council of Florence to, well, Florence. He left behind a widow, the noblewoman Picardo Guerri, and a ten-year-old son, Pierre Francesco. Cosimo took them both in and gave Pierre Francesco an upbringing alongside his own son. But Cosimo still had his powerful friends, like the prominent oligarch Agnolo Acciaioli, the Alberti family, his numerous contacts in foreign governments and in the papacy, and of course his army of clients. I mentioned last time how the power of not just Cosimo but all the great Florentine oligarchs depended on the system of patronage and clientage. But how exactly did having an army of clients help Cosimo rule? And how much did he rely on patronage? Well, for starters, patronage wasn't just something Cosimo did on the side with his banking and political activities. Patronage was a full-time job. The modern historian Anthony Mello found that almost 70% of Cosimo's surviving letters involved requests for patronage from Florentine citizens or his international banking clients, ranging from asking for a small loan to begging Cosimo that he intercede with the Pope over some matter. It's also important to note that Cosimo's network reached much further down than the upper echelons of government. His clients also dominated many of the district committees, called the Gonfalons. Originally founded just to organize the city militias, the members of the Gonfalons became the ones who determined the political eligibility of local residents, kept track of forced loans and the distribution of tax benefits, and judged which citizens should be punished and have their property confiscated for tax avoidance. In a way, control of the Gonfalons was just as important as control of the Republic's executive and legislative bodies. And Cosimo had that too. If anything, Cosimo had the most influence over foreign policy. Foreign diplomats rarely just met with members of the Signora. Instead, they often met and discussed politics with Cosimo personally in his own home. One of Cosimo's many friends in the arts, the poet Ludovico Carbone, leaves behind a rather touching account of one such meeting. Cosimo de' Medici, who by reason of his riches, his power, and his prudence, no less, who directed and governed the city of Florence for a long time, as if he were its lord, 
once had to negotiate with certain ambassadors from Luca. The audience was held in his own house, according to custom, and while he was in discussion with them, a small child, his grandson, came up to him with some sticks and a little knife for Cosimo to make him a whistle. Cosimo signified that the discussion was adjourned, devoted himself to the child and made him the whistle, telling him to run away and play. The ambassador, somewhat offended, turned to Cosimo saying, Indeed, Sir Cosimo, we cannot help but be surprised at your behavior. We have come to you on behalf of our commune to treat of grave matters, and you desert us to devote yourself to a child. Cosimo, with a laugh, flung his arms around their shoulders and replied, Oh, my brothers and my lords, are you not also fathers? Know you nothing of the love for children and grandchildren? You are surprised that I should have made the whistle? It is as well that he didn't ask me to play it, because I would have done that too. The identity of the grandson isn't specified, but of course I'd like to think it was the future Lorenzo de Magnificent. In any case, Cosimo was the proud papa of a growing family. His sons Giovanni and Piero were both married to Florentine noblewomen, Ginevra Alessandri and Lucrezia Tornabuoni. I'll talk more about Lucrezia particularly later, but these were women brought up under humanist ideals, and they served as patrons of artists, writers, and scholars in their own right. As for the Medici sons, Giovanni is described by Cosimo's biographer G. Gutkind as, quote, a sensuous, vivacious, gifted, and cheerful young man who appreciated refinements of life, enjoyed the company of charming women, was unsparing in the satisfaction of his senses. On the other hand, Piero was a born banker. Even his appreciation of art, genuine as it was, was really based on his appreciation for art's potential monetary value. No wonder then that while Cosimo had both sons work as managers in the bank early on, he groomed Piero to one day run the entire Medici bank, while Giovanni was meant to one day succeed Cosimo in managing the Medici's political operation. Piero and Lucrezia had a large family of four children, along with Piero's illegitimate daughter, Maria, who in Italian upper-class custom was raised alongside her legitimate siblings. Ginevra and Giovanni had only one child, Cosimino, or little Cosimo, who sadly died at an early age. All members of the family followed Cosimo's example in being generous to artists and scholars and, of course, to the church. Cosimo himself meticulously recorded all of his donations and contributions to church buildings in the ledger titled God's Account. Among these holy benefactions was a total overhaul of the convent of San Marco, which got a new church, cloisters, a library, a refectory, and an altarpiece that, of course, proudly displayed frescoes of Saints Cosmas and Damien. Also, Cosimo commissioned the Renaissance great Donatello to make two sculptures. One was a sculpture of King David triumphing over Goliath, which I covered before as the first freestanding nude statue since antiquity in Europe, and a sculpture depicting 
Judith and Holofernes. Another famous Old Testament story, Holofernes was an Assyrian general leading an assault on Israel who was tricked and beheaded by a Jewish woman, Judith. Both the accounts of Judith versus Holofernes and David versus Goliath were well-known narratives taken up as symbolic of freedom and civic virtue in the Renaissance. Even while personally dominating Florentine politics, Cosimo was still careful to take up the visual language of liberty and independence. Then there was, as mentioned in previous episodes, his interest in Greek philosophy and how much he backed the efforts of Vasarion, Plafon, and Marsilio Pacino to teach Greek literature and philosophy to Italian humanists and translate Greek works. Besides the establishment of the Platonic Academy in Florence, which served as less of a formal university and more a high-profile discussion forum for humanists interested in all things ancient Greek, there was Cosimo's sponsorship that enabled Marcelo Pacino's translation into Latin of Plato's complete work. Along with helping to reintroduce Greek philosophy to the West, Cosimo's two biggest contributions, in my view, were neither church renovations or sculptures, but two buildings. I touched on it before, but Cosimo made his own personal library to basis for Florence's first public library, the Laurentian Library at San Lorenzo. The library still operates today. Also, Cosimo commissioned the architect Michelazzo to expand his family's villa with Cosimo even purchasing neighboring buildings which were annexed to the site. Construction began in 1444, but took almost a lifetime to finish. The building was finally completed in 1484 after both Cosimo and Michelozzo's deaths. The expanded villa became the building known today as the Palazzo Medici Riccardi. Inside is a chapel painted by Bonozzo Gazzoli with frescoes illustrating the journey of the Magi to visit the infant Jesus Christ with the likenesses of the Medici family and various participants in the Council of Florence standing in for the Magi and others. The Palazzo still serves as the site of a museum and even the administrative center of Florence's metropolitan government. Although Cosimo was lavish in his support of his artistic and scholarly friends, he did not introduce any reforms benefiting the urban working class. Basically, Cosimo was no Salvestro. The most he would do was that he would not seek to disenfranchise members of the minor guilds or restrict their rights like the old conservative regime constantly tried to do. Instead, Cosimo presented an image of himself not as a popular revolutionary, but as just the first among citizens. Still, he could not or would not discourage comparisons between himself and another man who also presented a modest PR image of himself and who achieved absolute power by manipulating existing political systems. Augustus, the first emperor of ancient Rome. Rather, Cosimo was careful to court the upper class of Florence, who started referring to themselves as the Atamati. The term itself was another symptom of people's growing reverence for the ancient world, especially Cicero. Atamati was lifted directly from 
Cicero's own Latin term, optimates, literally meaning the best and referring to Rome's long-established aristocracy. For Cosimo, pleasing the automati was just one half of a delicate balancing act, because Cosimo realized it was also important to court the favor of the members of the rising middle class. It was this class that Cosimo entrusted the most with political posts and diplomatic assignments, since they would be entirely dependent on the favor of the Medici, unlike the great families of Florence who all had their own client networks and independent wealth. The trick was to rely on the new middle class without alienating or provoking the jealousy of the Atamati, something even a politician as talented as Cosimo could not always pull off. To quote the modern historian John Najemi's description of the new order Cosimo created, it took the Atamati a long time to admit what foreigners could see more clearly, namely that they were all gradually being reduced to the status of clients in a hegemonic patronage system. An entire class made dependent on the Medici for offices and voices in the regime, for financial favors and fiscal relief, advantageous marriages, beneficial positions in trade and banking, preferred treatment in Rome, lucrative ecclesiastical appointments, places of honor in civic rituals, and not least, for protection of their social prestige and wealth from the popolo and the catasto. It was still, though, all in all, a delicate house of cards. And its first real test came out of foreign affairs. As often happened, the foreign policy crisis was sparked by a question of succession. Duke Filippo Maria of Milan was getting old and his only heir was Bianca Maria Visconti, his illegitimate daughter. Since at the time, even in ideal circumstances, the very prospect of female succession, especially of an illegitimate child, was questionable, Filippo Maria turned to a young and extremely talented condottieri, originally from the Romana, Francesco Sforza. Sforza had been in a contract fighting for Milan, and like a true condottieri, occasionally he still took assignments instead fighting against Milan. Nonetheless, it seems that Filippo Maria for a time had singled out Francesco Sforza as the next Duke of Milan. After all, he arranged for Francesco to marry Bianca Maria, and may have even signed a secret pact with him nominating him as his successor to the duchy if he didn't have any sons. Since at least 1434, Cosimo and Francesco Sforza had also become friends and made some sort of agreement with Cosimo, promising to support Sforza's claim to the duchy of Milan. Based on how loyal Cosimo stayed to Sforza, he at least had some personal liking for the general. But in Cosimo's eyes, it was also a purely a pragmatic arrangement. After all, as long as Francesco's claim to the duchy was shaky, Cosimo refrained from making any kind of formal alliance with Francesco. Although Cosimo owed his entire political existence to the Republic of Venice, 
He was also coolly aware that a strong Venice without serious rivals in northern Italy was not at all in Florence's best long-term interests. Worse, if Milan happened to implode because of the lack of a clear successor after Filippo Maria finally died, Venice would simply have no more obstacles to just striding across all of northern Italy. For this reason, despite his long personal relationship with Venice, Cosimo threw his weight behind Francesco Sforza after Duke Filippo passed away on August 13, 1447. Duke Filippo had thrown a wrench into everyone's, including Cosimo's plans, when he instead bequeathed the duchy to King Alfonso V of Naples. Well. But then, a group of leading Milanese citizens suddenly declared the restoration of the Republic of Milan, which had not technically existed in over 200 years. This republic, given the rather optimistic name the Ambrosian Republic, was right away thrown into war as different foreign powers clamored to get their or their allies' hands on the rich and powerful duchy of Milan. Venice hoped to annex most, if not all, of Milan's territories. Cosimo, however, betrayed his old-time allies and instead helped fund Francesco Sforza's war effort. With such decisive backing, Francesco Sforza took the city of Milan itself by the spring of 1450 although the war boiled on. Cosimo's break with Venice remained permanent and was apparently to some degree personal. At least it was personal according to a casual remark Cosimo made to a Milanese diplomat in response to Venetian efforts to get Milan at one point to switch sides and align with them. Quote, Nicodemo, have you ever seen such sorry liars as these Venetians? Another succession issue that threatened to change the Italian political landscape just so happened to unfold at exactly the same time. On February 2nd, 1434, Queen Giovanna II of Naples died. She had no children or close relatives. The two most likely heirs were King Alfonso V of Aragon, which is today in eastern Spain and Sicily, who still had a very old claim to the kingdom from back when the kingdoms of Sicily and Naples were still unified, and was the same Alfonso that the Duke of Milan wanted to succeed him. And then there was Duke René of Anjou, Giovanna's cousin. After years of uncertainty and conflict, Giovanna finally named René her successor. But of course the matter didn't end there as the major powers of Italy split down the middle supporting one of the two rivals. The papacy in Venice backed the new king of Naples, René, but Milan helped keep Alfonso's claim alive. By 1442, King Alfonso's forces had driven René out of Naples and back to France. The problems of Naples and Milan quickly intertwined with depressing inevitability. With Francesco Sforza firmly in control of Milan, Venice reluctantly gave hope of conquering the duchy and instead tried to install their ally, King Alfonso, as Duke of Milan in addition to King of Naples. Naturally, René of Anjou led an army from France to back Francesco Sforza in exchange for a promise that he would help René regain Naples. 
Cosimo had Florence join the war on the side of Francesco Sforza and Rene of Anjou, partially because he did not want either King Alfonso or Venice to become too powerful in Italy, but also because he hoped Florence would finally get control over the city of Lucca in the bargain. Jean Brucker once wrote that, quote, Cosimo de' Medici's genius as a political leader lay in his superb sense of limits. This is true, but it was at this point that Cosimo made a rare misestimation of his own limits. After all, war takes taxes. And during this particular war, taxes were higher than ever before. The Venetian ambassador to Florence gleefully reported on April 9, 1454, quote, The citizens have raised a great clamor about the new taxes, and as never before, have uttered abusive words against Cosimo and others. The same day the Venetian ambassador made this report, the war over Milan and Naples finally ended with the Treaty of Lodi, which forced Venice to recognize Francesco Sforza as the rightful Duke of Milan and left Naples in the hands of King Alfonso. In a classic silver lining, though, the fall of Constantinople at the hands of the Ottoman Empire and the fact that Italy was the obvious next target for the Turks had frightened all the Italian powers into a lasting peace for once. However, for all his navigation around the complicated and constantly shifting Italian alliances, Cosimo did not manage to get his hooks into Lucca. Even with peace, the blow dealt to the Florentine economy by the war and the scars left behind by high taxes led to troubling signs. Even though he admired Cosimo, the chronicler Giovanni Cavalcani railed against those who, quote, decide who is to be chosen for high offices even before the names are drawn in public. And he remarked bitterly that the Palazzo Medici, quote, will make the Colosseum in Rome look futile. Cavalcani was far from alone in his discontent. One night, Cosimo's doorstep was found covered with blood which Calvacani thought had to be the work of the Butcher's Guild. The omens were troubling enough that Cosimo decided to take a rare chance and played for the first and only time of his political career an extremely risky card, namely constitutional reform. Specifically, Cosimo wanted to establish a permanent council that would decide on who would be allowed to become candidates for high offices. Unfortunately, even with his many allies in government, the measure was soundly defeated. Cosimo had to wait for an opening. That opening finally came in July of 1458, when one of his most loyal lieutenants, Luca Pitti, was elected gonfalonier. Cosimo moved to call a general assembly to vote on his reform. On August 11th, the bell rung and male citizens over the age of 14 gathered at the Piazza della Signora. However, they crowded together under the watchful eyes of armed mercenaries, sent to Florence courtesy of Cosimo's pal, Francesco Sforza. As soon as an audible number of voices, but hardly the majority, cried out their assent from the crowd, the officials immediately declared that the motion had passed and that the General Assembly was over. This new council that was on Cosimo's wish list was the Cento, or the Council of 100, and it just so happened to be filled with Medici loyalists, of course. 
One of the council's first acts was to purge about 1,500 citizens from the electoral rolls. Despite this, you could still say that Florence was a republic, and as the struggle to bring the Cento into existence proved, Cosimo's whims could still be defied, or at least delayed, by the government occasionally. And there really was no reason not to expect that Cosimo's unseemly monopoly over politics would just prove to be another unpleasant blip in the history of the Republic, like Salvestro de' Medici's regime or the Albizzi rule over Florence. After all, at the time the Cento was created, Cosimo was really getting on in years. Neither of his sons were in the best of health either. So what were the odds that this whole thing would last exactly? Becoming the ruler of a city was one thing, but choosing who to pass your authority onto and having that decision stick even after you're in your grave, well, that was something else entirely.